Well, it was 1818 in the nation of France, and there was a young boy named Louis. He was nine years old, and he went into his dad's workshop, and his dad was a leather worker, made harnesses for horses, and the boy loved to watch his dad work. And as he watches his dad, he said, Dad, someday I want to be a harness maker just like you. His dad says, well, why not start now? So he took a piece of leather, drew a design on it, and he says, now, son, I'm going to give you a hole punch and a hammer. I'm going to put you on this anvil, and you have to follow the design. He said, now, be very careful. Don't hit your hand. And so the boy was so enthusiastic. He's like, okay, dad, I'm not going to hit my hand. And he was so worried about not hitting his hand, he hit the little marker so hard, it bounced off the anvil and got him in the eye. And the dad felt horrifically horrible. And they rushed him into the local doctor, but they couldn't save his eye. He lost his sight. And as young Louis grew up and he was in his teen years, eventually the strain on his other eye uh, was too much and he lost his sight. Now he was fully blind. As a young adult, he's sitting in the garden and his best friend and he are hanging out. And for some reason, the friend picked up this big pine cone. And he said, hey, Louis, I'm going to hand you up a pine cone, and so he gives it to him. And, and obviously, as happens, when you lose one sense, your other senses are heightened. And so his sense of feel was amazing. And he started to feel all the little ridges, the bumps, everything on this pine cone. And all of a sudden, an idea came to him. And a few years later, he had created an alphabet of raised dots on the paper, allowing sightless people to read. And his name, obviously, is Louis Braille. And that's why we have the Braille system today. And I love that story because out of a horrible tragedy came an amazing triumph that has gone all over the world, has improved the lives of sightless people all over the world. And that's a theme that pops up in Acts chapter 20 today. Tragedy and then the triumph that comes out of it. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip open to Acts chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be reading the first seven verses. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed for three months. Now, because some of the Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Piraeus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. Five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Now, aren't you glad your pastor doesn't talk till midnight? You know, Paul and his team Amazing, that little list of his helpers, of the guys that he was training, is so crucial to how the church expanded and grew and churches were planted. 
Now, you will notice, in, as I read there, that the pronoun we is back. As we've been marching through Acts, we comes back and goes away in certain chapters and sections. And what he means is Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, is now with them. He is with Paul and all those guys listed there. And that's important for two little reasons. Number one, Luke, when he is present, he gives those absolutely first-person, first-hand eyewitness details. And if we remember, as we've been talking about, you're probably sick of me saying, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were originally one book. It's in our English Bibles that we've separated the two, but they're originally one book. And at the very beginning of Luke, Luke wrote these amazing verses. He said, Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. That was Luke's goal. And he personally fulfills it in chapters like our one today, where he is there, he's noticing the details. He's writing all the things down. All right. Second little point about Luke being there is that Luke was a doctor. Now, we know him because he wrote down the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But his day job was actually being a medical doctor. Now, Luke would have seen, as a medical doctor in the first century, a lot of people die during his lifetime. Now, that's an important point for what's going to happen in this chapter. We're going to eventually encounter a dead body. Now, some people might, when we read a little bit later, will say, well, how did we know the person was for sure dead? Maybe they were knocked out. Maybe they were unconscious. And I want to say there's no chance of that. Luke was a doctor. He absolutely knew the difference between knocked out and dead. He knew the difference. All right, I want to focus in on one little detail that we just read in verse 6. And it says, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's that? Well, it's a Jewish festival and it's one, a feast and it takes one week. And you take the first day off as a day of rest and you take the last day off. And God commanded the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to take all the yeast, anything that would cause their bread to rise, take all the yeast out of their house for that period, that one week. And they were to sweep the cupboards, make sure there was no yeast. And during that week, they weren't allowed to eat any bread that had yeast in it. Everything had to be flat, kind of cracker-like, and that's what they ate with their meals. Now, there was a whole point and a purpose to why God did that, but it was a long-established Jewish tradition. And every year, the people would say, okay, it's time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Paul was Jewish. Newsflash there. No, obviously we knew he was Jewish. But even though Paul has dramatically become a follower of Jesus, and everywhere he goes from Jerusalem to Syria 
to the Roman province of Asia, Macedonia, Greece, he has got Jewish synagogue people angry at him because many Jews have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And these synagogue leaders are angry with him. They want to kill him. They keep running him out of town, chasing him, doing all kinds of craziness. And despite that fact, Paul did not stop being Jewish. And I think it's amazing that right in the middle of his super busy missionary journey, Paul, because of his Jewish heritage, stops and honors that week, that Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why do I think that's an important point? I think it's significant because that has continued to be true for the last 2,000 years. As people come to faith in Jesus Christ from other belief systems, other cultures, other religious things, we don't require that they lose their culture. Today, in 2022, if a Jewish person accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean they have to reject their Jewish culture. At that point, they begin to fully discover that Jesus doesn't do away with culture, but in fact, he fulfills it. He changes it. He completes it. The new Christ follower doesn't have to become un-Jewish. Now, an example a little closer to home would be our indigenous brothers and sisters here in Vancouver Island, like the Sedimanus First Nation. And in just the same way as a Jewish person doesn't need to become un-Jewish, our indigenous brothers and sisters don't have to give up their culture. There's no sense that when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ that they need to lose their art, their food, their drumming music, their dance. Those things shouldn't be rejected. Instead, they should be embraced and celebrated. I want to show you a picture this morning of an amazing indigenous artist. His name is Roy Henry Vickers. He lived out on the west coast of Vancouver Island. And uh, you can go down in super fancy art galleries in Caresdale on Vancouver, and you can buy one of his paintings for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. One of his most famous is called Jesus Christ in Red. And here's a picture of it. Amazing, amazing picture. And Roy Henry Vickers came to faith in Christ, but he didn't lose his culture. He didn't lose his art. In fact, he celebrated it. And he brought Christ into First Nations indigenous art in such a beautiful way. And I think that's an incredible example that when we follow Jesus, he doesn't abolish culture. He fulfills it. All right, we're going to continue on in verse 7. On the first day of the week... We came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking till midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on top of the young man, put his arms around him. He said, don't be alarmed. He said, he is alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So our second point is entitled, Tragedy After Triumph. So where are we? Well, we're in the little city of Troas modern-day Turkey. They've sailed across the Aegean Sea from, from Greece and Macedonia. And it says they met on the first day of the week. Now, why is that significant? Remember, up until this time, 
the Jewish calendar said if they're going to meet and worship, that's going to be on Saturdays. Jewish people go to the synagogue on Saturdays. Now, when Christians came on the scene and Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday became the day of worship. Now, interestingly enough, I think they would have been meeting in the evening. And the reason for that is these Christians, these Gentile Christians that had decided to follow Christ, there was no such thing as a labor code in the first century. They couldn't march in and say, well, Sunday's my day to worship. You need to give me the day off. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Get back to work. And so they found that the most convenient time was to meet in the evening. And it says there that they met and broke bread. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says this. He says, the breaking of bread would have involved a fellowship meal, in the course of which communion was celebrated in the middle. They met in the evening, a convenient time for many members of the Gentile churches who work for other people and couldn't get the day off. All right. So remember I said Paul is, or Luke is now with Paul and all of his workers, and there's these little eyewitness details. And all of a sudden, he throws one of those in. He says, the room was filled with lamps and torches. Now, as Paul kept speaking, as he goes on and on and on, smoke from those torches and those lamps would have kind of started to fill the room, made a layer on the top of the room. Probably explains why this young guy, Eutychus, went and sat in the windowsill. He wanted some fresh air. Now, Eutychus, as a young guy, was probably just come off a shift of working all day at a laboring job. He's tired. And as Paul continues to speak, he kind of relaxes and he falls asleep. His body goes limp and tragically he falls three stories to the ground below. Now, chaos erupts in this little home church. Everyone freaks out. Ah, they all rush downstairs. You know who I think was at the front of the pack? I think Dr. Luke would have been the first one down there. And it says that interesting phrase, the young man was picked up dead. And I think Luke examined him and said, you guys, I'm so sorry, this young man has died. And then comes the all-out miracle of verse 10. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. So what's this deal with Paul throwing himself on top? Well, that is kind of a symbol in Jewish circles and in the first century of all-out desperate prayer. When you are stretched out and it is your last absolute hope, you throw yourself down in prayer. And so that's what Paul did. He threw himself down. And we're not recorded what Paul's prayer was, but I'm pretty sure I know it was, Jesus, please save this guy. You know, give him his life back. And Paul prayed loudly and boldly, and this miracle happens. He is restored to life. You know, we have just come off of Easter last week, last Sunday. High point of the Christian year. We, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You know, Christianity is a faith built on history. British historian Paul Johnson says, Christianity is essentially an historical religion, bases its claims on historical facts, it asserts. If these are demolished, it is nothing.
Now, I believe there is a ton of evidence that are extremely convincing in regards to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I also think that this resuscitation of Eutychus back to life from the dead has all the marks of an authentic historical account. Now, you may be here this morning or watching online, and you may be saying to yourself, what? Some dude falls three stories out of the window, dies, and is brought back to life. Sorry, that is just too much to believe. Well, number one, I want to say thank you for listening. This is the place to bring your, your doubts and your skepticism. That's cool. So glad you're here. So glad you're listening. Number two, good for you for not just blindly accepting this. It's okay to push back. Want some solid evidence before you consider whether this is true. But most of all, I'd like to say, if you're watching online or you're here this morning and you're really nervous, maybe it's your first time being back in church in a long time, you're feeling a little out of place, you look around and go, wow, everyone's a perfect Christian here. They're all super well-behaved. They're super moral, super good. I would say, don't let all the pretty faces fool you. You are surrounded by people who have out you 10 to 1. So just relax. All right. So let's jump in and look at this big question of the miracle. Eutychus comes back to life. Is this plausible and believable or not? Well, to some people, miracles are completely off the table. For them, the universe kind of functions as a closed system. That view is called naturalism. John Morrison, in his book, says, Naturalism is the belief that nature is the ultimate reality. Nothing can interrupt or disrupt the way it runs. There's no room for talk of the supernatural. Now, that may be something that you've grown up with. That's the way your family thought. That's the way you've been taught. The way you've been taught to think. And if that is you listening this morning, I want to challenge you with this question. Are you absolutely sure that if God does indeed exist, if God created the world and the universe, that he wouldn't be able to intervene in a supernatural way if he wanted to? Philosopher Richard Swinburne, in his book, The Existence of God, says this. He says, natural laws can be set aside only by the action or with the permission of God who sustains them in operations in the first place. Now, maybe philosophy and big arguments aren't your thing to consider, I want you to consider this amazing interaction between a former alcoholic and a very skeptical person. This alcoholic guy becomes a follower of Jesus. Through the whole 12-step AA process, he, he trusts in his higher power, comes to faith in Jesus, and it changes his life. He meets this skeptical woman who wants to know how he could possibly believe all this nonsense in the Bible about miracles. And she says to him, you don't actually believe that Jesus changed water into wine, do you? And this former alcoholic looks at her and says this. He says, I sure do, because in this house, Jesus changed the whiskey into furniture. When you don't drink away your paycheck, you can afford some nice new furniture. Now, back to my line of argument that I've been building. Luke is a very detailed, careful eyewitness. 
If we even allow ourselves the idea that miracles like Eutychus being brought to life are possible, then we have some really interesting things to think about, don't we? I want to talk a little for two seconds about the city of Troas. At that point in history, it was probably a city of about 50,000 people. It's a good-sized city, but it's not so big that word of something so dramatic and miraculous and amazing wouldn't have flown through the gossip lines. Eutychus may have been a minor celebrity in that city for a few weeks. People would have come and, and wanted to meet him and say, wow, he's actually alive. Did you actually fall out of a three-story window? Yep, I did. It's right over there. Fell right to the ground and dead, and look at me. I'm perfectly healthy. Now, the account that Luke is writing, the book of Acts, would have eventually been copied and copied and circulated. If Luke isn't writing true and accurate things, it would be pretty easy for the locals to deny the truth of what had happened in their town. C.S. Lewis is one of the most famous uh, authors. Uh, he is famous for writing books like the Narnia series, Screw Tape Letters. But actually, his day job was being a professor at Cambridge and then eventually at Oxford uh, on literature. He was a world-class literary critic. And Lewis made it to the age of 32 before converting from atheism to following Jesus. And here is what he wrote after reading and studying the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. None of them are like these gospels. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is accurate reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelist realistic narrative. You see, no one in the first century was writing anything like the book of Acts. No one was writing something that was so researched, so careful in its details. No one was doing that. To the expert eye, like Lewis, the four Gospels read like eyewitness accounts. To the skeptical and doubting this morning, I want to say, I hope you are pondering these things. For those listening who have decided to follow Jesus long ago, I have something else for you to think about. I want you to think about Paul for a second. This young guy, Eutychus, falls out. Paul rushes down. Luke pronounces him dead. He jumps on top. He prays fervently, and he comes back to life. And interesting how the text records it. Paul very calmly says, don't be alarmed. He's alive. I don't think there was one doubt in Paul's mind that when he prayed, when he cried out to Jesus to, to restore this young man's life, I don't think there was one doubt in Paul's mind that God would answer that prayer. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What was Paul's history? Paul started out the first whole chunk of his working life. He had one goal, persecute the church. 
The book of Acts records Paul standing at the death, giving his approval for Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, first guy who gave up his life in obedience to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul approved of it, wanted it to happen, and was happy when he died. When Paul eventually comes to meet Jesus and, and they try to introduce him to Christians, they were all freaked out of him. No one would meet with them. They were frightened to death of him. He had this awful reputation of beating, abusing, killing, and destroying churches. Now here's what I want you to think about, church. Why do you and I, when we pray to God, when we ask God for big things or small things, why do these thoughts come into our minds, I'm not worthy? I'm not worthy to ask God for this. I'm not worthy to bring my request to Jesus because of the bad things in my past. Because if the Apostle Paul who murdered and persecuted and tried to break up churches, if the Apostle Paul can pray without one doubt that his loving Heavenly Father is going to answer that prayer, why do we? Church, let your sin and failures go. Be bold in your prayers to your forgiving and loving Heavenly Father. All right. So the Apostle Paul, after all this drama, is likely very physically tired. He's spoken all night long. and It says he spoke until daylight. He's tired physically. He's tired emotionally. All these crazy things have happened. And then Paul makes a very smart decision. He says to everyone in his party, all of his co-workers, you sail on to the next town. I'm going to walk. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. Well, I won't read the rest of the verses. Basically, they arrive. That's really an interesting detail. Why did Paul want to walk? Why didn't he just hop on the boat like everybody else? Well, I found this picture of an ancient Roman road that Paul would have walked on in that area of Turkey. Not beautiful. I mean, it's amazing to me that that's still there today. It's very peaceful. It would have been a lovely, amazing walk. I think the Apostle Paul chose to walk and said, I'll meet you guys at the ship in the next town for a bunch of reasons. I think he simply wanted time to pray. I think he wanted to thank God for the miracle of giving Eutychus his life back. I think he wanted to pray for that brand new church in that little city of Troas who had their faith supercharged with this miracle. He had just been for months and months and months in Greece and Macedonia visiting all these churches, seeing people come to faith. He would have been praying for each and every one of those congregations. And most of all, I think Paul himself just needed time to be restored. He needed peace. He needed quiet. He needed time to spend with his Lord and Savior. Now, that's not the most astounding insight in the world, but I think it's good, solid, biblical example of even for the busiest people, when we feel overwhelmed, that is a solid, solid example to follow. After a big, intense time, we are meant to walk and talk with our Lord and Savior. 
He intends to refill our tank. Trying to practice what I preach this coming week, uh, myself and Carmen, our board chair, and, and Fernando and his wife Eleni and Micah, we're all going over to our Fellowship Pacific Impact event over in Abbotsford. I'm going to take an extra day, stay with my aunt and uncle. Just going to take some time to, to recharge that tank, some time to pray. Try to do what Paul did and just walk and talk with Jesus. I want to leave you with that very simple challenge today. Has life been super busy? Are you feeling overwhelmed, stressed? Take a long walk with the Lord. And you thought the book of Acts was just a dry, dusty old book that wasn't relevant. Not so. Amen.